Uh, well, thanks for being here. Let me tell you this right up front. Uh, this message uh, this morning is for me. Uh, I'm going to let you uh, in, in a glimpse into my life a little bit um, and tell you about a God uh, that I need. And um, what we're going to be talking about today is, uh, is the attributes of a God uh, that, um, that I need to experience. Uh, let me just tell you this. If you're looking for a pastor without a past, I'm not it. You understand what I'm saying? Um, if you need a saint who's never been a sinner, that ain't me. Uh, and so I need what we're going to talk about. I need a God who's committed to my future despite of my past. Uh, and that's the, this, this, this has to do with the attributes we're going to be talking about this morning. Right up front, let me tell you where we're going. We're going to talk about the idea that God is gracious. That God is a God of grace. That means God is infinitely inclined to spare the guilty. So grace is. He's infinitely inclined to spare the guilty. What I know is, is what one, Psalm 145, 8 says. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and rich in love. And I need him to be that. I need him to be that. Uh, when the Bible talks about mercy, it often talks about grace, mercy and grace. Let me just give you a little bit of uh, background and a little bit of understanding. Mercy is not getting what one deserves. Damnation. Um, and I'm not going to talk about that. I'm not going to talk about mercy today. I'm going to talk about that in two weeks. I'm going to talk about the wrath of God. Because the wrath of God and the mercy of God go together. Uh, everyone who's broken God's law must suffer the wrath of God as a lawbreaker. And praise be to God that God has taken his wrath and poured it out on Jesus. So if we have a relationship with him, we don't experience the wrath of God. Jesus experienced it for us. But I want to talk about that today. Talk about that in two weeks. Mercy is combined with grace. Mercy is not getting what one deserves. Grace, then, is getting what we don't deserve. Eternal life and favor in this world. So grace is getting something you don't deserve. So mercy and grace are closely linked together. Mercy, not getting what you do deserve. Wrath and damnation. Grace, getting what you don't deserve. Eternal life and favor. A.W. Tozer says this, mercy is God's goodness confronting human misery and guilt. This is where God confronts human mercy or misery and guilt. And because of a relationship with Jesus through faith, relents in giving us what we would deserve because of his grace. Grace is God's goodness that's directed toward human debt and demerit. That by God's grace, God imputes to us, that means God freely gives to us, credits to our account, merit where no merit formerly existed and declares no debt when debt had been. Not because of anything we've done, just simply because God is gracious. Because of God's grace is part of who God is, grace is not just an action he takes. In other words, we can trust God's grace and his goodness as eternal and unending. And because, get this, grace cannot be earned, grace therefore cannot be lost. If God is good and gracious to us because God is good and gracious, 
immutably, unchangingly, and infinitely always been that way. There's nothing we can do that would earn and deserve God's favor and blessing. And if we can't earn it and deserve it, we can't lose it. That why, that's one reason I never want to hear us talk about anybody falling from grace. It's impossible. The only way one falls from grace is try to earn God's favor. Because once you earn God's favor, you remove yourself from grace. Do you understand? So in that context, every one of us has fallen from grace. Because we've tried to be good enough for God to bless us. When one admits sin, admits error, that puts them in a position to receive it. And a part of our problem is our understanding of grace. This is, how, this is part of our problem. As people, as church people, we talk about when those when people like commit real bad sins, having fallen from grace, the very nature of sinning greatly means there's even more grace. Do you understand? Where, where sin abounds, grace abounds more. So the only way you can remove yourself or fall from grace is if you try to earn God's favor. There's no grace for you if you earn his favor. Do you understand? So, do you know someone who's a real bad sinner? Are, are, are they sitting next to you? I mean, a real bad sinner. I mean, not, I'm, I'm not talking about a good, like, like most of you are good people. You've convinced yourself of that anyway. But, but, but some of y'all, you know some bad sinners, right? It's all the people watching online afraid to come to church. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But understand this, like the real bad sinners, they get more grace. You understand? Where sin abounds, grace abounds more. And so let's not talk anymore about anybody falling from grace unless they're the ones trying to earn God's good graces. Because if you try to earn it, you lose it. Am I clear about that? You understand? So, let me just address this, this thing. The theologians talk about common grace and saving grace. Common grace is the idea that God is just gracious and he's good to everybody, the just and the unjust. Matter of fact, the Bible says that God causes the rain to fall on the good and the, and the bad, the just and unjust, causes the sun to shine on the just and the unjust. That's just as common grace. He's good to everybody because he's a good God. But the Bible makes a distinction between common grace and saving grace. And saving grace is that which someone trusts in Jesus for salvation, and by God's grace, they're saved. So please understand, just because God is good to you doesn't mean heaven's waiting for you. You have to understand God's common grace and let that drive you to a saving knowledge and faith in Jesus and receive saving grace. See, grace is oftentimes combined with goodness in the Bible and in our understanding. The infinite, unchanging kindness and fulfillment of goodwill. This is God's grace and goodness to us. The infinite and unchanging kindness and fulfillment of goodwill. Like God is just, this is who God is. Matter of fact, Psalm 34 says again, taste and see that the Lord is what? Good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. A.W. Tozer talks about it like this. The grace and goodness of God 
disposes God to be kind, cordial, benevolent, and full of goodwill toward people. Like this is just who God is. He is disposed, he's predispositioned because of who he is to be kind and cordial and benevolent and full of goodwill. God is tenderhearted and quick to sympathy. And understand this, God has this unfailing attitude, this unfailing constant attitude that makes him inclined to bless his people. That's just who he is. He takes holy pleasure in the happiness of his children. This is who God is. Some, of, some people have such a skewed view of who God is. God takes holy pleasure in the gladness and the blessing of his children. And with every, as with every other attribute of God, his grace and his goodness exists within his immutability and infinite nature. That's what I mean. God's attributes of grace and goodness exist within the fact that God is immutable, unchanging. So if God is unchanging, right? If God is unchanging, that means his grace and goodness are unchanging. If God is infinite, that means his grace and goodness are infinite, unending. So that God is unchanging, always gracious and always good. This is who God is. And it is God's purpose to be good in special ways to his people. Is this who you understand God to be? It is God Almighty's purpose, not just his desire, not just his will. It's not something we just hope he is having a good day with us one day. It's his purpose to be good in special ways. This is what grace is. This is what goodness is. And this is who God is. And for some reason, people like me find it easier to affirm God's goodness when things are going well, but when things take a nosedive, we begin to question it. Right? There's a lot of reasons I hate social media. One of them is because of what has been so prevalent for so long. When I make, if someone gets a new puppy, they put hashtag blessed. They get a new car, hashtag blessed. They get a raise, hashtag blessed. You get a promote, the hashtag blessed. What, were you not blessed before you had the puppy? Were you not blessed when you were borrowing your friend's truck because you didn't have a car? Like you've always been blessed, right? I'd love for someone to say, well, I lost my dog and I lost my truck, but I'm still blessed. But I guess that'd be a country song and that wouldn't... <laughs> The writer of Psalm 34 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And he invites us just not to affirm that God's good, but to experience his goodness. The, the Bible says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. This poor man called and the Lord heard him and he saved him out of his, all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. And what does God do? delivers them. Taste and see then. Because when you're in trouble, you can call on God and he delivers. Taste and see then. Because he stoops down to the lowly. 
Taste and see then that the Lord is, yes, in fact, good and gracious and blessed is the one who takes refuge in this God. I want you to know something, that the affirmation of God's goodness is in the context of pain and suffering. Verses 19 and 22 of that same chapter, the righteous person may have what? Any you good people ever had troubles? But the Lord delivers them from them all. The Lord will rescue his servants. No one who takes refuge in him will ever be condemned. Even with a good God, even with a God who is sovereign over, even with a God who has power over all things to do everything he desires, good people still suffer. And even in the experience of evil and pain, we can take refuge in a God that is forever and consistently good and gracious. Because that's who he is. One of the passages in the Old Testament where God explains who he is in regards to compassion and goodness is found in Exodus 34. And if you have a Bible and brought one with you, you can look on the app. It'll be up here on your screens too. But I want you to go to Exodus 34. This is a, a passage of scripture that would be very, very beneficial for you to understand. Exodus 34, the Bible says this. And he, God, this is when Moses is up on the mountain and God passes before him. And he, he, he put Moses in a, little, in, a, in a little crack in a rock to protect him. And he passed it before him and let Moses see the backside of his leg, basically. And as he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, this is what he said, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. That's a good God right there, right? The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. We like that God. This is where he says, this is who I am. And my compassion and my goodness look like this. They look like me who was slow to anger and abounding in love, faithful, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, forgiving rebellion, forgiving. That's a good God. But look at what else God says. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Uh oh. Uh oh. Hold on now. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents of the third and fourth generation. Well, that just took a turn. I thought God was compassionate and gracious, isn't he? I got one yes. I thought God was compassionate and gracious, but here he says, he's going to take it out on my kids for my mistake. To my kids, 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 kids? What kind of compassion is that? Right? We're going to talk about this whole thing because there's a lot here. Through it all, I want you to remember the fact that God has said, his self-proclamation, that he is compassionate and he's gracious. Don't lose sight of that. Hang on to that. We'll, we'll, we'll get to this other stuff. In this passage, the Lord, the Lord, he affirms who he is two different times. He uses his proper name, Jehovah, Jehovah. He, he, he says who he is two times, Jehovah, Jehovah. 
Because he wants to make sure the self-disclosure that he is emphasizing his unchangeableness. I am who I am. I am who I am. This is who I am. This is who I am. This is what I do. This is what I do. He's saying, don't miss this. And then what follows, the Lord, the Lord. And then what follows is an emphasis on his attributes that he wants to emphasize. And he wants to make sure that we understand that what follows these attributes are unchanging and never ending. The Lord, the Lord, pay attention to what he says next. These next things are unchanging and eternal. Now, when God says this passage in Exodus 34, all he's doing is repeating what he'd already said in Exodus 20. In Exodus 20, it's what we call the Decalogue. Deca means 10, the 10 commandments. And God first gave the Ten Commandments back in Exodus 20. And when God gave those commandments, you go back and read it for yourself. Don't just take my word for it. But he starts with judgment, and then he gets to the good stuff. And when he repeats himself in Exodus 34, he starts with the good stuff, and then gets to the judgment. He flips it. I don't know if you ever noticed that before. See, in Exodus 20, God was establishing his standard and his holiness and his expectation, knowing that he was talking to a bunch of potential lawbreakers. And he says, because you guys are a bunch of stiff-necked, bullheaded, rebellious little, I'm going to give you what I expect right up front, right? So here's how this looks. As a daddy, you got a young man as you're brazen and and you know that he's nothing but stubborn, bullheaded, and obstinate, right? The first thing you got to do with a kid like that is lay down the law. Right, dads? Right? I got two that time. The rest of you are going to have kids out of control. I'm just telling you, you, you got to set up front. These are my expectations. Don't you cross them. And here's how I'm going to be good. And that's what God did in Exodus 20. But in Exodus 34, he started backwards. He started with the good stuff and the kind stuff. Why? Because he was now talking to actual lawbreakers. And God needed to establish for the lawbreakers his compassion and his grace. And he does the same for us. He knows that we're lawbreakers. And he doesn't come to us with a heavy hand and says, because you have, here you go. He says, because you have. I'm a compassionate and gracious God. Because I love you. That's why he does it backwards. Do you understand? When my boys were little and they knew that they had disobeyed me. And they knew daddy was coming home. I walked through the door. You think I had to reestablish that I was daddy and in control? No, what I had to do was love them. Because they already knew they had broken. You understand what I'm saying? So God says, for you lawbreakers, I am compassionate and I am gracious, and I offer kindness and faithfulness. My compassion and my goodness are tied forever to my kindness and faithfulness. I want you to understand something about God. 
Kindness is not nice things that he does. That's not kindness. Now, that's how we understand kindness. And oftentimes, if you're in a, a you know a relationship with you know, someone at home or whatever, and they think, you know, you're just not very kind. And what they mean is you just don't do very nice things. Right? That's well, it's not really what you said. It's how you said it. It's just, it wasn't kind. I'm just the way you said it just wasn't kind. And I feel like if you knew me and you loved me, you would be kind. But this is not true. This is how we understand kindness, right? Yeah. But in the Bible, the Old Testament Hebrew word has said that's kindness. But here's what kindness means in the Bible. It means benevolence out of obligation resulting from a legal relationship. So here's what it means. Kindness is an obligation to be benevolent because there's a legal relationship in place. In other words, God is bound. Understand this about God. He is bound by his own law as a relationship between the father and the child to act in kind ways towards us. He cannot not be kind because he's bound by his own law to respond to us because of the legal relationship that I have with Jesus. Do you understand? And when the Bible says that God is faithful, what, he, what it really means is he's reliable. He cannot not be this. God cannot not be compassionate to me when I break his law. God cannot not be gracious to me when I break his law. God cannot not be good to me when I break his law. God cannot not be benevolent towards me because I have a legal relationship with Jesus. So God is bound by his own law to act in kindness towards me because he's reliable. This is who God is. And when it's used together like this, compassionate and gracious, kind and faithful, it means God is absolutely and eternally dependable in dispensing these benefits. They just keep coming. Because it's a result of his grace and goodness that are immutable and infinite. They just keep coming. But you know what you and I do? We try to deny our guilt and we try to earn it and it stops the flow of it. Do you understand? In the list of the characteristics in Exodus 34, I'm slow to anger, abounding in love. Two things, all of these characteristics in Exodus 34, they're all communicable. That means they can be communicated to us and us to other people. And so as we receive them from God, we give them to others. They're communicable. The second thing is that, is, that, is that all these other attributes of God have had their foundation, compassion, and grace. And because God had already established his holiness and his separate apartness on Sinai, now because he was dealing with people who had broken his law, he revealed who he is. He, he didn't need to talk anymore about his holiness. He didn't need to remind them of his power. He, nor did he have to say, hey, remember, I know all things and I'm everywhere. He didn't have to talk about any other of the almighty, holy, non-communicable attributes of him. All he had to do was reinforce to them what he wanted the people to remember and walk away knowing about him. And so he says, I'm compassionate and I'm gracious when you break my law. It's amazing God we have. Amazing. Amazing. Compassionate and gracious. Compassion just means that God turns his anger away. I don't want to talk about it today. I'm going to talk about it in two weeks on Palm Sunday. 
But for the lawbreaker, God's wrath has to come. But the corollary of his wrath is compassion. God has to pour out his wrath on those who break his law. He has to because he's a just, righteous God. And so when I break God's law, his wrath has to come. But because God is compassionate, he turns his wrath away from me onto Jesus. So if I have a relationship with Jesus, God's wrath still comes, but it doesn't come on me. Do you understand? It comes on Jesus. And that's what the cross was about. Where wrath and compassion came together on him, not me. Not, but I want to talk about that today. We'll talk about that in two weeks. But this whole thing of grace, this is it for today. Grace means to bend or stoop down in kindness to an inferior. It's the favor of a superior to an inferior. And it's the giving gifts to the undeserved. See, when I recognize and realize and admit and accept the idea and the fact that God is superior and I am inferior, grace then means that that superior God bends down and stoops down in kindness to me, the inferior one. And that superior God shows favor to me, the inferior one. And that superior God gives gifts to this one who is undeserved. That's grace and that's who God is. And this is the God I need. And God says, this is who I am. I am the compassionate one, and I am the gracious one. And my compassion and grace are shown to you in the fact that I am slow to anger. It means I have a, sl a, short, a, a slow fuse. It means that I, I, my love is abounding, and I show it to thousands upon thousands of generations. And I'm faithful. That's what my grace and goodness looks like in your life. And he says, because of my compassion and my grace. And he's saying this to people who just, just absolutely destroyed his law. He's saying, because of my compassion and my grace, I will continue to forgive wickedness and rebellion and sin. Now, I, I, I don't know what your last night was like. Uh, my guess is sometime in this last week, and if it wasn't this last week, it's going to be the coming week. You participated in wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Am I right? A couple of you are willing to admit that? Look at the person next to you. They probably did more than you, so feel good about yourself in that way. Okay, so, so, so if that's the truth, what's God's response? His response is, I got compassion and grace. And this is all through the Bible. The writer of Psalm 86 says, but you, Lord, are compassionate and a gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. It's all through the Bible. This is who God is. And I don't know why we miss it so often. I think I do know why. Because we're so, we're, so, we're, we're so convinced that we got to earn it. Do you know why God starts with these two attributes in Exodus 34? I'm going to tell you why. Thanks for asking. One is because these attributes are the ones that people in your huddle need to see the most. 
People in your huddle, your 8 to 15, those closest to you, they need to see these attributes more than any others right now. I guarantee you that. They need to see compassion. They need to see graciousness. They need to see goodness. I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm convinced that there aren't many people in our huddle that need to know right now that God is an immutable God, unchanging. They don't need to know that. Here's why. Because if their view of God is a God who is judgmental over every mistake, I don't want that God to be unchanging. I want that God to change and be nice to me. You understand? People right now in your huddle don't need to know that God is omnipresent and always around. Why? Because if their view of God is this God who is judgmental and angry with their screw-ups, I don't want that God around me, and I don't want to be around that God. Oh, but I do want to be around a God who is compassionate and gracious. You understand? So these things we've got to get a handle on before. And so here's the thing. Your people in your huddle need to know this God. And the way they'll know that God is through your life. As you communicate these attributes and how you live. But the other reason why God started with these two, compassion and gracious, is because this is, this is what the people he was talking to needed. Now think about, the, the, uh, it, it, you Bible students, you know, and, and maybe this might be new for some of you, but, but Exodus 34 comes after Exodus 32. I mean, that's in the Bible. Okay, so, 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 so to understand why God started in Exodus 34 with compassion and grace, we got to go back to Exodus 32. What had just happened in Exodus 32? Well, I'll tell you, in Exodus 32, Moses goes up the mountain the first time to talk with God. And God gives him this Ten Commandments. He chills the mountain stone. He's having this great time with God up on a mountain. He's coming down. All the people waiting for him in the valley. He's coming down thinking, man, I can't wait to share this with everybody. Man, this is such a good thing. And he comes down and he sees the people. <laughs> he was up on a mountain a long time and they got tired of waiting on him. And so in their stupidity, like we oftentimes are, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us turned our own way, the prophet Isaiah said about us. They got tired of waiting, and so they took all their gold jewelry that they got out of Egypt, and they melted it down, and they made a gold calf. Because a calf was a symbol of what they worshipped back in Egypt, what the, what the Egyptians worshipped, and, and what the Canaanites around them worshipped. And so, and so they, they, like, they make this gold calf, and then they get naked, and they start dancing around a big bonfire on this calf. I mean, it's just ridiculous, right? And he comes down, and Moses sees this, and he's like, oh, hey, hey. He's Jewish, you know, that's what they say. And he drops these tablets and they break. He's like, you mother, you know, and he just loses his mind. And he gets so upset and brutal with them. He's like, chop up that gold calf and grind it down. And then he made everybody drink the gold. I mean, he lost his ever-loving mind. And God's watching this happen. And God's like, you know what? You've seen what man does in his anger. You need to know that I am not like Moses. I'm compassionate, and I'm gracious, and you do me wrong. That's who God is. Now, that's good news, right? But what about that passage in Exodus 34, 7 that said, God's not going to spare the guilty, and the father's sins go on for four generations? Does that sound compassionate and gracious? I will maintain love to thousands and forgiving witness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, 
God does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of their parents to the third and fourth generation. I need to take a moment. I know I'm running late on time. You okay for a little bit longer? Let me, let me just press into this a little bit. Especially in light of what some people term generational sin, generational curses, and generational consequences. Let me just deal with this because there's this stream in Christian churches these days uh, talking about generational curses and generational consequences. And depending on who you listen to, some people go off on this stuff. Let me just teach a little Bible to you. What this says is God will hold people guilty and there will be consequences. But right off the bat, because God is gracious and compassionate, let me help you understand understand this. If there were no guilt, there would be no grace. God has to hold people accountable. He cannot clear the guilty without consequence. Because if he did that and nobody were guilty, there would be no grace. This whole passage is about God's compassion and grace. How can it turn to all of a sudden judgment and condemnation? It doesn't. It's still about God's mercy and grace. Because if he doesn't hold anyone accountable, no one receives his grace. Where there is no guilt, there's no grace. God's goodness is not good if God is not good in the midst of my guilt. Do you understand? God's goodness is not good if he's not good in the midst of your guilt. God is so good and gracious. He says, I'm compassionate, I'm gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. How good is God? He maintains his love to thousands of generations, forgiving wickedness and rebellion. And here's the thing, God has storehouses and warehouses of compassion and of grace and of goodness, and he has an inexhaustible supply. He's simply looking for a distribution system, and the distribution system of God's compassion and grace and goodness ought to be the church. And when God says, I will hold accountable to the third and fourth generation, all that is is a common Hebrew idiom. It's just saying it's going to go on for a long time. What has he just got done telling his people? I'm compassionate and I am good, abounding in love and faithfulness. What he's saying here is your children will sin and I will continue to be who I am. Not just the God that levels judgment, but the God of compassion and grace. Not just to you, but to your kids and to their kids and to their kids as well. He says, I am who I am to you and I will be who I am to your children. And I will expect you to live according to my covenant and I'll expect them to live according to my covenant. And I expect obedience out of you and I'll expect it out of your kids. And I'm not going to change what's right and what's wrong in each successive generation. What I've said is right is right and what I've said wrong is wrong and I'll require holiness from you and I'll require holiness from your kids and your grandkids your children's children's children are going to have to learn to choose to follow me but I will never change who I am nor what I require so remember who I am and what I require I require righteousness but I know you're going to break it so don't forget who I am to the third and fourth generation actually don't forget who I am to the thousandth generation I am a God of compassion and grace slow to anger and abounding in love That's who I am. Now, when it says the sins of the fathers, if you're a daddy, that is a scary phrase. The sins of, yeah. 
where is this gender inclusive, like everybody's the same? Why doesn't it say sins of the mothers? And while I'm on that note, why is the devil always a guy? Women get so upset. Well, what about the God is a woman? Well, how about the devil being a woman? I mean, if you want to be equal. Amen. <laughs> hey, y'all got rid of Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head. Y'all accept the devil now. Let's just be equal. Where was I? Sins of the fathers. Now, it's true. The sins of the fathers may have effects long after the fathers are gone. I'm, I'm not saying that's not the case. But this is no statement that each generation can blame their faults and their failures and their futures on their parents and their grandparents. Nor can you even say, well, I'm an Irish redhead, so I got a temper. It, that doesn't work. One person got that. I thought it was good. <laughs> this does not suggest generational curses. This does not suggest generational consequences. If that were the case, this verse would violate Scripture itself because the Bible says the one who sins will be the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor the parent share the guilt of the child. The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. This has profound, you want to talk real life right now, this has profound implications on the Christian's expectation of generational reparations. According to the Bible, these generations are responsible for themselves. And successive generations do not bear the responsibility of former. Jeremiah 31. In those days, people will no longer, this is God talking. In those days, people will no longer say the people have eaten, the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. No longer, that used to be a saying, God says. And he says, no longer will my people say that. So paid, if you're a Bible teacher, if you're a Bible student, if you're a leader of people in the Christian context of scripture, no longer will you teach this and say this. The ones whose teeth are set on edge are the ones who eat the sour grapes. Nobody else. This type of generational curse ought not be spoken or taught any longer according to God. In other words, what God is saying is I am consistently who I am to each and every generation. I don't bypass generations and I don't take one generation of stuff and put them on another generation. I am who I am in each generation. And if I am compassionate and gracious to you, I will be compassionate and gracious to your children, not holding your sins automatically to their account because you screwed up so badly. He says, I've forgiven you and I will forgive them. Good news, mom and dad. He's forgiven you. He's going to forgive your stupid kids. I have, I've been good to you. I will be good to your children. Good news, mom and dad. You know how, been I, how good I've been good to, good to you. Even if you're getting it really, really, really far away from me, I'm still going to be good to them too. Good news. I've been gracious to you. I'm going to be gracious to your kids as well. My grace is proficient for everybody. I will visit each generation. I won't leave any out. I've been faithful to your generation. I'm going to be faithful to your kids' generation. But the world's going to hell in a hat basket. I understand that. But I'm still going to be faithful to them. I've con I will convict you and I will convict your children is what he says. I'll convict you and I'll convict your kids because if I don't convict you nor your kids they don't experience my grace do you understand 
I will be present in each generation, convicting each generation so that each generation can experience my compassion and grace. Ultimately, he says, you will have to answer for your own actions. But remember, I am a God of compassion and grace. And so at the end of the day, because we all answer for our own actions, the preeminent question and choice we have to make is this. What shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Messiah? That's the question. What will you now do with Jesus who is called the Messiah? God's desire is that each of us be convicted of our own sin. Not because he wants to level judgment and wrath, but because he is righteous and is willing to level that against Jesus. And because until we acknowledge that, we remove ourselves from grace. Do you understand? See, God says, if I let you or your next generation or the next generation or the next generation or the next, if I let any of you off the hook, I remove you from the possibility of receiving grace. And I don't want you not to experience my grace. So I have to convict you. Not in order to destroy you. You have to feel the conviction of being a lawbreaker so that you can receive my compassion and my grace. And he says, if four generations reject me, and if four generations follow in the sin footsteps of their fathers, I will be compassionate and gracious to a thousand generations. Do you see how much more expansive God's compassion and grace is than our sin? You know why the reason, and I'll be done with this. Do you know why, you know, you know the reason we resist admitting guilt is because we don't trust grace. If you have a relationship with somebody and your response to them is always, will you, will you, will you, will you, without ever me, 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 the reason it's always you, you, you is because you don't trust grace that they have to give. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because if I don't trust grace, I don't ever want to be wrong. I got to protect myself, right? You understand? And here God is saying, if you mess up, your kids mess up, your kids mess up, and it goes on, I, my grace goes on longer. It goes on longer. And you have to, we have to get to the place of being able to admit guilt so that we can be in a position to receive grace. Because here's the deal. This God has an amazing grace. An amazing storehouse of grace. An amazing warehouse of grace. And the best thing we can do is to admit the breadth of our sin. Because the greater our sin is, the greater grace that we receive. Do you understand? Like this is so crucial to who Jesus, this is so crucial to who God, this is so crucial to the Christian faith. When every other religion in the world wants to convince its people to be good and not mess up, Christianity is the one that says, no, 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 go ahead and admit your mess up. Because as you admit it, you get more grace. 
the best thing we can do is to admit our sin. Because God stands not as an angry judge. And whatever anger and judgment he has to pour out, he's already poured out on Jesus on the cross. And so I stand with full confidence and agree with God that I'm a pretty big sinner. I'm, I'm a much better sinner than Caleb is. I've lived a lot longer than you, and I've learned a lot more how to sin than you have. Rick, you're older than me, right? Oh, sir. <laughs> so I'm probably a bigger sinner than you. I see some of you out there. I won't point you out. But I know you're bigger sinners than me. All this means, I get more grace than you do. So suck it, Caleb. And I get more grace than you do, you little Gandalf the Gray looking beard. This is good news. So quit trying to front like you ain't a sinner. The best thing you can do is say, absolutely, and I'm a worse sinner than you. That means I get more grace. Because my God, the immutable and changing one, the infinite one who has always been and will always be, is a God of compassion and grace, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithful to a thousand generations. Pray with me. Father, thank you. Thank you that that is who you are. Thank you that we don't have to earn anything. That we just come before you admitting our guilt and sin and be in this position to receive compassion and grace. I'm going to give you a chance right now, just wherever you are, between you and God, to agree with God. God, I'm sorry. You know and I know that I have messed up time and time again. I admit my sin. And I ask your forgiveness. And then establish this legal relationship with the Father through the Son by saying this, Jesus, come into my life. I accept you as my leader. When you've done that, you have a legal relationship now with the Father through the Son. And because God is a reliable God and trustworthy and faithful, he is now bound by his own law to be favorable towards you because of the relationship he has with you now. And so now with all joy in your heart, you say, Father, thank you that I am yours now because of Jesus. Thank you that you are now favorably disposed towards me. And I look forward to the manifestation, the showing of your grace and your goodness in my life. I no longer live like I have to earn it. I just simply receive it because of who you are. You are a good, compassionate, and gracious God. And I thank you. In your name I pray, amen.